Well, it's good to be with you. This morning, we continue our sermon series on the spiritual dynamic at New Life Church. And if you picked up one of these booklets on your way in, it will describe that in its fuller detail. But this morning, we're looking at the page that you might have seen, The Gospel Moves Us to Mission. And when you saw that page, you might have thought to yourself, oh dear, I guess I'll just have to try harder and do better and maybe do a little more. I, yeah, I got I to gotta do better at that. And if you're like me, you're tempted to think those kind of thoughts about just about every part of life as a Christian. Do better. Try harder. Do more. And that is a human dynamic. It's simply behavior modification. In fact, it's not even dynamic. It lacks the dynamism or the power that would produce the fruit in your life in the first place. And that human dynamic of do better and try harder is rooted in the unbelief that we are not really, truly, fully alive in Christ. It's rooted in the do, do, do of religion instead of the done of the gospel. And so we don't actually believe that all I have is Christ. I have a lot of Christ and a little bit more of my work. And so I pull our, we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we start at it. And our human dynamic is fruitless, exhausting, and powerless. And so when the Apostle Paul in the book to the Romans writes these words, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, he is speaking not of a human dynamic but of a spiritual dynamic, one in which belief in the gospel produces the life of a saved person. Last week we were introduced to the big idea to this series which was that constant faith in the gospel produces the kind of life, the kind of church, and the kind of change in the world that we hope for. And my big idea this morning is related. The love of Christ instantaneously creates and perpetually controls a new people who engages missionaries. The love of Christ both instantaneously creates a new people that happens one time, and it then perpetually controls, the same thing, perpetually controls these new people to live as missionaries. And so we need more than merely a one-time cognitive agreement that we are loved by Christ. We need to bask in it, an ongoing, abiding faith in Christ's love. It is this ongoing, constant faith that will produce in us the fruit in our life in the church as we engage as missionaries. And that's what we mean when we talk about a spiritual dynamic at New Life Church. So we're going to press hard at the gospel. We're going to press hard on the love of Christ today and let it transform us. I want to illustrate that from the scriptures. Would you please turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which Lena read a moment ago. It's about 90% of the way through your Bible and I will begin reading in verse 14. 
The Apostle Paul writes this. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And here we see that the love of Christ instantaneously creates a new people, a new creation, and perpetually controls this new people. Look at the opening words of verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. You are loved by Christ. You cannot hear it enough. You cannot overstate it. You are loved by Jesus. And that is the good news which we believe and run to daily that produces in us the life that Christ would require, produces the fruit. And the word order here is perhaps challenging, and it's challenging because we have a particular bent. We would like to read this to mean, our love for Christ controls us, because then it's dependent on us. The more love I have, the more I'm controlled by Christ. But the Greek grammar leads us to understand that it is not our love for Christ that controls us, but it is Christ's love for us which controls us. And one of the reasons that that direction of affection is clear is in the remainder of the verse. How do we know that Christ loves us? Because, he says, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let me remind you again this morning how this little story of the the death and the resurrection of Jesus is significant and changes everything. You see, in the beginning, God created his heart overflowing with love to create a man and a woman, male and female, in his image, inviting them into relationship with him where they too would delight forever in his presence and in his love. The peace they experienced is how life was meant to be lived with God. But those first humans, Adam and Eve, believed a lie that in fact God did not love them. So consequently, they ate the fruit, disobeyed Him, rejected Him, ran from Him, saw how life worked on their own apart from Him, and everything broke. The whole fabric of creation unraveled when sin entered the world. 
The consequence of their disobedience was that they would surely die. And the Old Testament, then, this big part of your Bible, is the story of God relentlessly pursuing his people that he has made, whom he loves, with abounding steadfast love and faithfulness, making pledge after pledge to them that he would come and reconcile them to himself. Those same people who rejected him on every page. Those same people who were counted among his enemies, believing the lie that he did not love them. But when we turn the page from the Old Testament into the New, we're introduced to a son of Adam, who is also the son of Abraham and the son of David and the son of God, the long-awaited the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. The one who would pay that penalty for sin so that humans could re-enter relationship with God. The scriptures say that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And they continue, but God demonstrates his love in this. While you were God's enemies, Christ died for you. Jesus lived the sinless life that we humans were unable to live, yet he died the death we deserved to die because of our sin, taking it upon himself, and he rose again, giving new life, making new creations for all who believe in him. He is the one who died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, the first Adam sinned and died, and all of his children die. The second Adam, Jesus, did not sin, but died and rose, and all of his children by faith, live. And through faith, the love of Christ at one instant creates a new people. A people who one day will again walk with God, delighting in His love as they were designed to from the beginning. Tim Keller summarizes that story this way. He says, we are far worse than we could ever imagine and far more loved than we could dare to dream. Have you stopped to consider why Christ loves you? Have you stopped to think about what it is about you, his enemy that makes you so lovable that he would love you the way he loves you. My kid's uh, storybook Bible attempts to answer that huge question and it says, we were lovely because he loved us. You see, it was the uncaused love of God that 
caused him to send his son. And it was the undying love of the son that caused him to die for you. And that changes everything. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, when the Apostle Paul is using the word all, he's referring to the word all, all people. The invitation to Christ from Christ is for all people. The love of Christ is for all people. And you'll see in a minute that invitation is saying, be reconciled to God, come to him. But don't speed read here. There are two categories of people. There are all, have, all who have died, and we are introduced into a new category. There are those who live. And what has happened when the Christian, by faith, experiences this instantaneous love of Christ, it produces someone who is no longer in the category of dead, but now is in this category of those who are alive. Faith in Jesus, responding to the gospel, means, yes, you benefit from his death. You are dead to your old ways. You are dead to yourself, but now you live. His resurrection is applied to you, and you live not for yourself, but for him who for your sake died and rose again. And I suppose this begs the question, do you want to live for Christ? Or do you want to live for yourself? If you want to live for Christ, then where are you going to get started? What does that look like? How do we do this? If you want to live for yourself, then what would change your heart? What would, what would transform you from the inside out so that you would start to want to live for Christ? And here's where our spiritual dynamic comes in to play. All of us Start with the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ that will control you, that will inform every step along the way as you live for the one who died and rose again for you. It is also the love of Christ that will make you alive and give you a new heart, making you a new creation that desires to live for him. So it is the starting point and it is the continuation line. It is a moment and it is perpetual. We will never grow beyond our need for the love of Christ. Now, what does it mean that the love of Christ controls us? You love that word, don't you? It sounds so negative. Some of your Bibles maybe have the translation, it compels us or it constrains us. And really, the in the positive sense, it is this idea of constraint. It makes us do the right thing. Along with it is the negative side of restraint, where it also keeps us from not doing the right thing. And so literally what it is doing is holding together 
The love of Christ is holding us together. You can think of it like the banks of a river that hold the river in place or the lanes on the road that you drove to get here that kept your car or your belt on Thanksgiving that holds things in place where they ought to be. That is what the love of Christ is doing for those who believe. But it is so easy to be controlled by something else, is it not? To be controlled by a peculiar doctrine or dogma or your family or the app with the calendar on your phone or your bank statements. We're so easily tempted and so easily controlled by anything other than the love of Christ because we forget that we are loved by Christ. But we will never move or mature beyond that fundamental reality we could never plumb the height, breadth, or depth of his love for us, and so we stay there, and it controls us. Now, as Paul continues in 2 Corinthians, he illustrates one example of what it looks like when the love of Christ controls us. He notes one specific shift that takes place. Look at verse 16. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. When you are controlled by the love of Christ, you begin to see people the way that he sees people. You remember that the love of Christ led him to die for all, regardless of physical indicators, regardless of what they looked like or their status. And that same love now controls us to see the same people the same way that he sees them. When was the last time you went people watching? It's kind of like bird watching. It's a little more creepy. I don't know what venue you were in, but you, you may have looked around and noticed a few things. You may have noticed that Every human's face is different. Even the doppelgangers, their faces are different. It's incredible. You may have noticed some really nice clothes or maybe some really funny t-shirts or maybe some really peculiar tattoos or skin color or age. And the temptation is to look across the room and to begin to judge people according to the flesh, to See them according to the flesh. But if you've been loved by Christ, you begin to look at that room a totally new way. If the love of Christ controls you, you start to see people not just merely as bodies walking around, but you see them as God sees them. Your heart full of love for them. And you no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. He uses Christ then as an, ex as an example. He says, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We don't do that anymore because our eyes have been opened to who he really is, and the same thing happens now when the love of Christ controls us. Our eyes are opened, and we see people as they really are, made in the image of God with inherent dignity, worth, and value that he has bestowed on them. Every person, a part of the all, who is loved by Christ and invited to new life with him. And so we don't see people the way we used to see people. The love of Christ controls us, and we see them as he sees them. 
But it's not just your eyes that are changed when the love of Christ controls you. No, that's, that's what he gets to next. This transformation that happens in life is much more holistic. Look with me at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's not a part of your life left uncontrolled by the love of Christ. There are no pockets where you have control in some other places where he does. You're a new creation if you're in Christ. Now you remember that once we were in Adam and we received what Adam received, namely death. What happens by faith in Jesus, that instantaneous moment that his love transforms you as you become positionally in Christ, where now you receive everything that Christ receives, namely life. And when Paul's speaking of a new creation, he's speaking of more than just a new creature, like once you were a broken toy and you got fixed. It's not that. He's speaking in referring to all that is summed up in the kingdom reality that a new creation is coming. And you as a new creation are set apart to live as a new creation person when Jesus reigns. It's not merely that your old hurts, habits, and hangups have been fixed. It's that your whole being, your identity as enemy of God has been made new. You're now a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus, awaiting a final new creation. And as such, you no longer live for yourself, but for him who for your sake died and rose again. You follow a new king. You belong to a new kingdom. One of the fundamental trans transformations that happens in you is to your eyes. You start to see people a new way, but really all of life is now controlled by the love of Christ. And so it is in this sense that the love of Christ instantaneously creates a new creation and controls perpetually how this new creature lives. Now, Paul turns to explain further what these new people who are controlled by the love of Christ do. We used to live for ourselves, now we live for Christ. What does it look like? Look with me at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The love of Christ instantaneously creates a new people. It perpetually controls a new people who engage as missionaries. 
Verses 18 through 21 here zero in on the outward-facing engagement of this new people as they live as reconciled reconcilers or as ambassadors in the world. Those are the two new identities that they're given here. Reconciled reconcilers and ambassadors. There's a hyphen between those words. Reconciled reconcilers and ambassadors. So consider with me first what it would mean to be a reconciled reconciler. First you need to do, first thing you need to do is consider how precious that thought is. He begins in verse 18 by saying, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. All of it's from him. You brought nothing to the table. We, need, we needed more than mere behavior modification. We needed to be made new in identity, transformation, and God has done it all. Previously, it was the love of Christ controls us, and now it's as though we've turned the jewel of the gospel a bit and considered God has reconciled us in Christ, and we're given the ministry of reconciliation. So in a similar way that the love of Christ controls us in a moment, it makes us right with him, and then it controls us being reconciled to God. Yes, it's happened. You're reconciled. And you walk in that. People who are reconciled, who are given the ministry of reconciliation, will never outgrow their need to remember that they are reconciled with God through Jesus. Now Paul explains this connection between being reconciled and the ministry of reconciliation, being a reconciled reconciler, a bit further as he continues. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Notice a couple things here that change and affect life as a reconciled reconciler. First, God accomplishes what we were unwilling and unable to do ourselves. God is the active agent in reconciliation. He's doing it in the whole world. He has not only, as a human would, overlooked the grounds for offense. He has removed the offense altogether and not counted our trespasses against us. And that changes everything. That means that now that the offense has been removed, you can have peace with God instead of attempting to live to assuage His anger or somehow diffuse His wrath. Where there was once hostility and striving to please him, now there is peace. And once again, you delight in his love for you. Because God has done it for us. And guess what? He intends to do it for others as well. And so he gives the ministry of reconciliation to those who have been reconciled. 
But the work of reconciliation, it starts with God and it ends with God. Its means is God and its goal is God. And so one thing that reconciled reconcilers do is they pray. They're dependent. We are dependent on God to reconcile people to himself. And we do invite those who are disconnected from God so that they would delight in him through Jesus. One of, the, one of the other things that this means for reconciled reconcilers is it means that very clearly Christ is God's agent in reconciliation. He says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. As we read at the beginning of our gathering this morning in Colossians 1.20, it's very clear that the incarnate creator is the one whose death enables reconciliation. Ephesians 2.16 makes it clear that God reconciled us through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And thus, there is no reconciliation without a cross. And there is no message of reconciliation without the message of the cross. And so as reconciled reconcilers, we engage those who are disconnected from God so they delight in him through Jesus and Jesus alone. And it's our aim as we preach this message not to conflate it with other ideas of Jesus and this, Jesus and you join my team, Jesus and you, you do this kind of way of partying or going to church whatever other things you want to add, you, we preach Christ crucified and Christ alone. Now notice how these two effects of reconciliation in verse 19 are linked. It says that God was reconciling, he was not counting our trespasses against us and entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. And what's happened is the barrier to being reconciled to God has been removed. And so there's a one-time alignment with God. We are reconciled. And he entrusts us with the message of reconciliation so that we would continue walking reconciled with him, partnering with him, co-laboring with him. This is his work in the world that he has brought us into. Just as you need to drink daily of the love of Christ for it to control you, you must pause and consider the walls that, that God has broken down to reconcile you as you are a reconciler of others. Now, there is a second identity that's given to this new creation. They're reconciled reconcilers, and they are ambassadors. And this one's perhaps a little bit more explicit here. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ. Now, there are at least three implications of what it means to be an ambassador, and they're all based on just what it means to be an ambassador in regular life, which is not very regular. It's kind of a unique thing. Not a lot of people are ambassadors in real life, but the principle will apply for us. The first is that an ambassador is sent 
by their king. The ambassador is sent. No longer is an ambassador allowed to stay on their couch. They are sent to a new land. They have all the rights and privileges of their home country, but they live somewhere else. They are foreigners. Now, you might recognize this idea from Jesus' words at the end of Matthew's gospel, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And maybe what you should hear there is you should hear the king with all authority sending his followers to all nations to make disciples. And in our Bible, it looks like the word go is the imperative. It's the command, go. So a lot of times you'll hear that go from the sermon on being a missionary. That's describing life as an ambassador. You are an ambassador. You are a disciple maker. And it is as you go, everywhere you go. But you have been sent by the king. The second implication of what it would mean to be an ambassador for Christ is that we submit to the king. An ambassador doesn't operate on their own authority. An ambassador follows the rules of their king. What is it that controls us? Verse 14, the love of Christ. Who do we live for? For him who for our sake died and was raised. Who gave us this position, this assignment? All of this is from God. And so we are exclusively about the king's work and the king's message. We're not about our work or our message or our pet issues. There is no part of life as a new creation that you get to reserve for your own little autonomy. You belong to Christ. You are loved by Christ. So our whole life belongs to him. Our home, our schedule, finances, relationships, talent, everything belongs to him. We are sent by the king. We submit to the king. The third is we represent the king. Now, a beautiful thing has happened here when we are describing reconciled reconcilers is that this message of reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation is exactly what God has been doing throughout history. So when he gives you the ministry of reconciliation, he's not telling you to go beta test this on the field. He's been doing it all along. You're now a co-worker, a co-laborer alongside God. Verse 20 says that God makes his appeal through us. You could say one of the ways that God is a reconciler of the world is through reconciled reconcilers through ambassadors who then have this message, be reconciled to God. Chapter six opens with this beautiful phrase, working together with him then, we plead with you. Have you thought about your life in light of what the gospel has done in you and making you a new creation that now you are working together with him then? as you're an ambassador? Now after that, you might expect uh, a list. Okay, here are all the things that good ambassadors do. 
That's not what you get. That's not what's here. No, even after all that, we are given another dose of the mysterious and breathtaking good news to keep us abiding in the love of Christ which controls us and has reconciled us. He says this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The means by which you were reconciled to God was that God gave to Christ something that was not his, your sin. And he gave to you something that was not yours, his righteousness. Ponder again and again, day after day, the immense kindness and the immeasurable love of God in this. You've not only had your sin removed, but you have been given all the rights and privileges of being God's child. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You were dead in your sin, but God made you alive in Christ. You were without God and without hope in the world until Christ appeared. You were an enemy, and God adopted you as a child. All of this is from God and it changes everything. And the question we're left with is, how could this love not control you? How could you not live for him for who your sake died and rose again? How could you not represent him in the world? How could you not implore your friends and family to be reconciled to God? How could you not engage those disconnected from God so they would delight in him through Jesus? I'm sure you're wondering now what to do. After all, this sermon is supposed to help us be better missionaries. So what are some things that we should do? There are four of them. The first is you are loved by Christ. The second is you are a new creation. The third is you are reconciled to God. The fourth is you are an ambassador. The application is not to do better, try harder, to do more. The application is to apply the gospel in your own life that it would produce fruit that controls you, that causes you to live for him. Your application is to grow into your gospel identity so that the how could you not questions start to be populated with ideas. Oh, I, I could. I am. This is who you are. It's the love of Christ. You are loved by Christ that controls you, not some checklist or to-do list. So your assignment is not to get doing, but to get being. Lean into this new identity, these things that Christ says of you. Press into them. Steep in them. Try them on for size and see how they fit. Walk around in those identities for a little while and see what life is like. Rejoice in them. 
Now, there are, we do have ideas of what it might look like for ambassadors to engage in their neighborhood. Or for people who are reconciled, they've got to have a conversation reconciling another person. And the Kingdom Initiative, which you can sign up for in the Sunday Hub, is basically this long list of ideas to help you be controlled by the love of Christ. But I do believe, we do believe, it is after all our spiritual dynamic, that as you grow into your identity as someone who is instantaneously alive in Christ, you will find yourself perpetually controlled by the love of Christ, fully alive as a new creation, partnering with God in reconciling others as his ambassador. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning we can't help but pause and bask in your love for us. To, con to contemplate the depths of our wickedness, the depths of our brokenness, the depths of our desperation, and to consider that you stepped in and reconciled us. It causes us to pause and rejoice. Lord, let us drink deeply from that well that knows no depth of your love. Today, tomorrow, the next day, and Lord, control us. Spirit, we ask that, yes, you would bear fruit in our life as we engage others with this message of reconciliation. We pray this for the sake of this church. We pray this for the sake of all whom Christ died for. In Jesus' name, amen.